0: Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daducci, and I'm going to cut straight to the chase with this one and say what this episode is about is samurai. And how I'm going to tell the story of samurai is through three very different pieces of media. So, I'm going to take you to the very beginnings of samurai culture with a video game called Ghosts of Tsushima, which came out in 2020 on the Sony PlayStation 4. Stand aside, Jin. You betrayed my family. Then I'm going to take you to the middle stages of the samurai story with one of the greatest movies ever made, The Seven Samurai. But here's the thing. There are no samurai actually in the movie. More on that in a moment. And then I'm going to finish off the story of about a thousand years of samurai with, ironically, the thing that's probably least well known. Let's see if you've heard of this one, which is called Rurouni Kenshin. Yeah, but what all these things do is allow me to tell you the story of samurai and how distorted they are, in essence, in the West.
2: But a foolish samurai warrior, wielding a magic sword, stepped forth to oppose me.
0: But as always, what we do here on Uncondensed Histories, we take a piece of pop culture and reveal the real history behind it. But this time around because all this stuff is clearly about samurais and set in the olden days, more on specific periods of Japanese history in a minute, then, yeah, it's pretty obvious that this stuff is inspired by sort of history. But the fact is, when I say samurai... A bit like when I say knight in shining armour... I know what's in your mind immediately. There's a bit of a cliché. They've got that kind of domed helmet on. They're beautifully intricate designs on the armour. There's probably the faceplate. There is the katana, the samurai sword of legend. There's the breastplate and so on and so forth. Maybe some flags on their shoulders... sort of snapping in the breeze... with some Japanese characters on them. All very, very cool. But the thing is, as as I've just described... Is there's nearly a thousand years of samurai history, unlike the knights of old. The actual full plate armor on the battlefield really only existed mainstream for about a hundred years. A knight sired by knights, a knight mm. who can trace his lineage back beyond Charlemagne. Knights themselves were around for, let's give them 400 years, shall we? So the samurai era goes way beyond that. In part, this shows you The sort of fossilization of Japanese culture that happened in the islands after a very specific event which I will come on to in a moment. Well, in a bit. It'll take me a while to get there. But it does mean that when you say samurai, unlike when you say knight, although there are many similarities between those two, many comparisons between the two, they are both the martial classes of their society. They both live in a feudal society, they are covered in armor, they are the ones who do the main bits of fighting. They are the best trained, most feared people in their societies. All this kind of stuff fits together. There are some big differences. And most notably, the evolution of the samurai is very different to the knight. So let's start off with that first bit of pop culture, Ghost of Tsushima, which takes me a while to say properly. Now, this in itself is reverential to the second one I'm going to be talking about, The Seven Samurai, because Akira Kurosawa is arguably the greatest japanese director that ever lived a lot of his best films are in black and white so you can actually play ghost of shishima in black and white And, and there's even like a photo a lot of modern video games have like a photo mode so it gives you a chance to show off the cool graphics and perhaps make up your own little moments and scenes in it i mean you can just do a screenshot of what you're actually playing in that moment but Obviously, doing it in black and white and framing it a certain way, it can look like it's something straight out of a Kurosawa movie from 50 years earlier. It's quite a remarkable idea and shows you the complexities of modern technology. And it's just a game as well. What kind of game? It's mainly sort of open world. I mean, it's not going to be as big as something like Skyrim or The Witcher 3 or something like that. But it's pretty open. What's nice, though, is if you can compare it to the likes of... I don't know, a a kind of Assassin's Creed or a Far Cry 4, something like that. Those sorts of open world games is when you open them up, you open up an area, and then it's just covered in little icons. Go here to climb up a tower, go here to do a side quest, go here to collect a thing, whatever it may be. So yes, there's the main story. There's just all this, what's referred to, and it's not meant in a nice way, all this busy work that you get to do. Now... Those side quests and extra bits are there in Ghost of Shimmer, but they they've decided on a very specific aesthetic. If you like, it's ambient little nods that will help you on your way. The wind helps to sort of rustle leaves and things like that to give you an idea that there might be something nearby that you might want to go and check out. You might hear noises and things like that. There is actually an option that your hero of the video game, you can actually whip out your flute and walk around and play your flute, which is not something that you would get in a Western European game because your your knight or warrior or hero, whatever is probably dripping in weapons rather than other things. The interesting thing about the video game is you can play it like a samurai or you can stealth your way around like a ninja. Just like- can sneak up on another ninja. I'm not doing ninjas this time around because I've got enough to talk about with samurai, so I'm putting that to one side, okay? The point of this is that you can actually play it in Japanese language, but the baddies don't speak Japanese. The baddies are speaking Mongol. And you might be going, well, Mongolia isn't anywhere near Japan, and you're right. Because this is actually happening in an era of Japanese history called the Kamakura era. This is in the mid-1200s. Because in the mid-1200s, that was the Mongol Empire at its peak. 20 years before this era, the Mongols had literally come crashing into Europe and annihilated every army that Hungary and Poland and the various knightly orders of Europe could pull together against the Mongols. Now, they ended up, as you know, not conquering all of Europe for reasons that got nothing to do with Europe. Europe was a minnow compared to some of the mighty empires and gigantic armies that the Mongols had already beaten. It was for internal power politics, and let's face it, Poland is a long, long way away from Mongolia, so that's why that never happened. But anyway, the point is, the Mongol Empire had expanded into all areas. We tend to know about them conquering Russia, Middle East... Maybe you know a bit about them hitting Europe. And if you know a little bit about Asia, well, obviously they conquered China. And now they are pushing into Korea, the Korean Peninsula, and they managed to capture that. And then in 1274, the great Khan, a guy called Kublai Khan, a grandson of Genghis Khan, Kublai decides basically he now runs all of China and he's decides to go and pull the full might of the Mongol Empire to create a fleet of ships to get across that sea, land in Japan and conquer the next thing on the list, Japan. And this is quite a big step away from all these When I say the Mongols, you're thinking of horse archers, you're thinking of cavalry, and they really weren't a seafaring nation. The modern day Mongolia is completely landlocked. They have no navy. They are not good swimmers. Okay, the Mongols, they're good at riding horses and hunting and things like that, at least in this era. Okay, only an empire of the size of the Mongol Empire could build such a large fleet so quickly and in 1274 they come over and they land they do actually manage to, to, to land but then a gigantic storm a tropical storm rises up a typhoon as they're known in the pacific and it wipes out the fleet most of the fleet sinks a few manage to sort of get home and tell this terrible story so it's just bad luck there is a landing, and there is some fighting, some skirmishing, because, let's face it, they arrive completely out the blue, typical Mongol fashion, so there is no sort of army waiting to fight them. But this does mean that Japan is now aware that there's this potential threat from the north. And then, in 1281, just a few years later, Again, because of the sheer size and resources of the Mongol Empire, a new fleet is created under Kublai Khan, and they are sent across the sea again. This time, you know, what well, the chances of another storm coming up and ruining operations? They land. There is some resistance on the shores because the Japanese are kind of patrolling and now waiting for the Mongols. But the same thing happens again. There is a second giant typhoon, and this leads to japan creating this myth that this island nation is protected by divine winds and divine winds in japanese is kamikaze you know the gods are basically smiling on the japanese people and stops this invasion. This is the most serious threat of invasion in Japanese history up until World War II. And indeed, World War II is the only time Japan has ever been successfully invaded. And yes, you're well aware, oh, kamikazes, those are airplanes. It's because with the threat of invasion happening again, the imperial court came up with this idea of, okay, we're not going to have a typhoon to save us now. We're going to need like a man-made divine wind, which is what these suicide planes will be. It's absolutely mind-blowing how you can draw a line from 800 years earlier, from the time of Mongol invasions and the time of World War II, the time of the Atomic Era even. So all of this is happening in the Kamakura era. The samurai themselves were actually created a couple of centuries earlier in the Hainan period. I mean, basically, soldiers had been around for quite some time, but this idea of a specifically in essence knightly class warrior class that was being formed and indeed in the Hainan period what would actually happen is that going into the Kamakura era is that samurai would actually announce themselves now I can't speak Japanese in fact my pronunciations here I'm trying my best I, if you are Japanese and you're saying eh, the, the tones are wrong I am sorry if my Japanese pronunciation phrasing is off but anyway so yes the idea is that samurai from across the battlefield would announce themselves so it'd be like i am jem from west london and i challenge you dave from peterborough to (laughs) it doesn't sound nearly as exotic when i anglicize it i'm so sorry but you get the idea in other words i'm declaring who i am i'm declaring where i am from so if i win this fight one-on-one fight then i gain honor for my clan This, this actually died out because of the Mongols, because as you're standing there going, I am Jem from West London. Ah! They just sort of fire an arrow and sort of take you out. The other guys are just Mongols. They don't know the routine. So yeah, the Japanese and the samurai worked out that that was gonna have to change. So, if you like, the Mongols did actually impact on Japanese culture, so we got, as I mentioned, the Hainan period and the Kamakura period, and all of this is sort of like linked up into Tsushima, which is one of the most beautiful video games you are ever going to see it is gorgeous and in the demos they they didn't so much show so much of the fighting they showed him riding his horse through fields of flowers and corn and things like that and it it, yeah for playstation 4 technology it has been redone for playstation 5 with extra levels thrown in as well not only is it a gorgeous game but it's a love letter to the whole genre of like samurai media and if you have any passing interest in it i would definitely definitely play it So that's video games and it shows you that even in 2020 it was a big selling video game. It did well enough to warrant in 2021 a kind of re-release with extra bits on top and made shinier for the PlayStation 5. So that is the 1200s and as I said you know earlier than that around about 1000 AD in the Hainan period you get this evolution of the samurai by the Kamakura era which is sort of roughly started started 1200 we now get definitely samurai and the other thing i wanted to talk about here at the beginning which is something that actually is a little bit wrong in ghost of tsushima is when i say katana the main sword of samurai well they're almost straight except they were more curved back in that earlier era now i always wondered as a kid it's like when you see a scimitar, let, let's pick the classic curved sword, shall we, from the Middle East. It's sort of like, well, that's not going to be as good at parrying as, as a Western broadsword or something like that. And and you're right. So the question is, why? Why have it curved? It seems almost making it harder to hit the target. Well, it is and it isn't. What's interesting is that a Western completely straight edged sword, obviously is good for parrying, i.e. knocking other weapons out of the way, so to protect yourself. And obviously if you hit, it kind of doesn't matter where you hit on that side of the blade, all of it is going to cut. But if you have a curved edge, the fact that the curve, the apex of the curve is biting into the target first, it means that as you sort of like swing and hit, it's almost like an arrow at that point. It bursts open the, the skin or the target, whatever you want to call it, and that curve allows it to slice in further.)
2: I don't
0: and what clearly in Japan, over the centuries, they were trying to work out is which way is better. There is no compromise. If you hit with a straight edge sword, the pressure is equal all the way along. So it may not cut as deep, but it will cut broader. Whereas, as I said, with the scimitar or some kind of curved blade, you get a deeper cut, perhaps more fatal, something like that. So actually a katana from the classic era, which I'm about to go into, had a slight curve to it. So there was an advantage to sort of swinging towards the middle of the blade, but it was all about the parrying. However, when you look at the actual chronicles and writings from Samurai of the time, of the era, while swords were important, they weren't the only thing. People would carry spears and bows. Samurai were particularly renowned for their bow skills, which is not something you necessarily think of today. And whereas, yes, there were some extremely well-made swords and there were renowned swordsmiths and some swords would be passed down father to son and have almost sort of legendary qualities to it. Those were very rare. Actually, the reality is that samurai wanted to have a good quality sword at their side, but in a number of battles, they would go through multiple swords. They would break of you know, chip against enemy armor and, and things like that. So with all that in mind, the katana is absolutely a part of the tool set, let's say, for samurai, but it's not perhaps as mythic and revered as you might think.
2: Wielding a magic sword...
0: So then we come to the Sengoku period, which is the 1500s, a time of pretty much continual civil war in Japan. And the Seven Samurai is set in this era. So if you like, going back to the, the time of goto so we're talking about 1270s, 1280s, we're talking about, let, let's use in English terms, we've got King Henry Third and King Edward I. This is sort of the era that we're in. We're at the tail end of the Crusades in the Middle East. that's so long ago, and it will make perhaps more impact when we go to the Third Era. But let's go to the Seventh Samurai. As I said, 1500s think Henry VIII, queen elizabeth I, protestant reformation all this kind of stuff happening at the same time as the sengoku period in japan now i'm not going to go into all the details of the history it's a brilliant story in and of itself i really recommend you perhaps sort of like if, if this sounds vaguely interesting don't know that much please grab a book on that era it's it's great it's great from the sense of it's a good story it really does read like something like Game of Thrones, you know, the rise and fall of various warlords and powers and things like that. Winter is truly coming. And in the winter, we must protect ourselves. But it was a time of anarchy. You wouldn't have wanted to live through it, particularly if you're a peasant. And this, if you like, is the point of Seven Samurai. And Akira Kurosawa had already made a great samurai movie called Yojimbo, which actually means the bodyguard. It's not his name. And that movie was turned into a fistful of dollars. Then Seven Samurai gets turned into another classic western, The Magnificent Seven. Yay! A fellow I once knew in El
1: Paso one day he just took all his clothes off and jumped in a mess of cactus. I asked him the same question: Why?
0: And he said it seemed to be a good idea at the time. Now my kids have seen both, and they prefer Seven Samurai. I mean, this shows you how good it is. It's in black and white. It came out in 1954. It is nearly 70 years old. It's obviously in Japanese. And yet, my kids, admittedly through two sittings, they sort of like watched the first half one evening, second half and the other evening, but it's over three hours long. And yet, they didn't get restless. Each scene has a purpose. And the introduction of the seven samurai of the story is amazing and one of the things you might not be aware is that certainly by this time the samurai were very rigidly enshrined in society if you like this is where they're a bit different to or substantially different to something like a knight in europe both of them were landowners and had a lord that they must be loyal to and provide their military martial services at a time of war they had their own armor horses retinue Weapons, etc. All those things are similar. However, the dress of a samurai, it was it was more restricted, more regimented in Japan than it was in Europe. So for example, there is this very distinct hairstyle of a samurai. In essence, the hair is, well, first of all, it's shaved in the middle. All of them look like they've got male pattern baldness. Again, that's something I can relate to. But the sides of the hair are sort of scraped together, almost like a ponytail is flapped over the front onto the bald part. Very distinctive hairstyle, and the hair was important. So therefore, when the main samurai in Seven Samurai, the leader, if you like, the wiser, older samurai, to save a situation, he shaves his hair. The look of disbelief from the onlookers would be realistic. It's like, oh my God, a samurai shaving their hair off, removing that very distinctive and identifying hairstyle would be as shocking as them walking around naked or deciding to not pick up a, a weapon and be a pacifist. There, all these things are unthinkable for a samurai at this time in the Sengoku period. And the samurai shaves off his head, pretends to be a monk because monks tend to have shaved heads, and then saves the child in a daring act of bravery. There are so many articles and studies and essays on the Seven Samurai. If you look at Metacritic, which is an amalgamation of ratings, very, very, very few movies get the full 100% in the Metacritic scores. Something like The Godfather gets 100 out of 100. Seven Samurai gets 98. So it's nigh on a perfect movie, and yet it's 70 years old. And lots of people say it's the first action movie. That's not to say there wasn't action in other movies, but this is where action and, and the action scenes are telling you something about the character of the people involved. It is a brilliant, brilliant movie. If you have not seen it, I cannot stress enough how you must absolutely watch it. Toshiro Mifune, who had played Rio Jimbo in the previous one, he was this very cool, calculated samurai. In this one, he's playing kind of a a wild man if you like he's a fake he's not really a samurai so again he's sort of pretending to be above his station which would be unspeakable and unthinkable at the time however a samurai as i just described has a lord and they must work for the lord these samurai have no lords they are using the western's term guns for hire they're mercenaries in essence and the name for a leaderless samurai just looking for work is ronin so actually there are no samurai in this movie but there are seven ronin well six ronin and a crazy cool guy Kikajiro. so there we go that's seven samurai and it's sort of set in this time of real tumult and in this time we get these various warlords like vying for power and trying to become the overlord of japan there's even a period where japan invades korea it's incredibly uh, brutal invasion of korea another reminder of why japan is looked down upon by other peoples in asia korea hates japan china hates japan and there's good reason if you look at the history of this this is where you get the amazing admiral yi from korea a national hero i'm going to say better than nelson this is a man who was first of all a general got thrown into prison then he got released from prison then he rose up the ranks of the navy and became an admiral and fought the japanese to a standstill it was an amazing career again don't have time for that on this one so all of this is going on you know so japan is just this sort of like martial power that's either fighting amongst itself or fighting with its neighbors and then we get the rise of this warlord called Ieyasu tokugawa And Iesu Tokugawa has no rights to the throne, but he is a extremely shrewd warlord and fighter and had been fighting in these various civil wars for decades. And then in 1600, we get the legendary, the critical Battle of Sekigahara, which, if you want to put it in Western parlances, is almost like the Battle of Hastings in the sense that, yeah, lots of battles may have led to good stories. But do they change society? This one did. Basically, what Iesu Tokugawa did is he crushed the competitors. He crushed his opposition, and he was able to consolidate power in Edo, which is nowadays Tokyo, and he created the shogunate. So up until this point, the emperor was important, but the emperor did have some political power. Now, with the shogunate, the emperor continued, but the emperor was now, if you like, the spiritual leader of Japan. Political power, real power, military power, sat with the shoguns which all came from the Tokugawa family. And this is the way it would be for the next 250 years. And and see, this is the thing. After 1600, there's a brief other period of fighting right at the end of Tokugawa's life. He's an old man by now. And his main rival, everybody rallies around this young boy, nine, ten years old. And in the end, the rebels lose this uprising.
2: Where? Friends
0: now. This is sort of like round about 1606, 1607. It's only just a few years after, so you know you can understand why people are going to give it one last roll of the dice. It doesn't go well. Tokugawa is still very much the man in charge, but he kills that heir of an enemy clan. This boy is killed because it ends the bloodline there. So here's the interesting thing. This is a country that regularly, well, for a hundred years, it was pretty much convulsed with civil war. Prior to that, there were lots of other civil wars as well, hence why we needed the samurai clan, because they weren't all fighting in Korea all the time. Question for you, to get 250 years of peace and prosperity for your country, is that worth the murder of a child? Well, how about 10 innocents? Now you're getting it. How about 100? How about 1,000? Not to save the world, but to preserve our way of life. That is a horrible question, I know. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer to it. But that's just one that might keep you up at night. Over to you and your sleep patterns. Good luck with that one. But Seven Samurai, as I said, if you don't know the story, and again, this has been reused multiple times, like in the ripoff of Star Wars Battle Beyond the Stars, and it's so many places where basically a small group of military men come in to... Uh, in essence, this is the core story of the a Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them... Maybe you can hire the a Bunch of military men come into a small area of farm owners. They're poor people who are being harassed by bandits or bad guys. And then these seven samurai teach the locals how to defend themselves a bit. You know, raise up a fence, things like that. Get rid of a house that's sort of outside of a defendable area because they'll never be able to defend it. So let's just deny the enemy that, that resource. And... Perhaps teach them how to hold spears and things like that, wooden staves, etc., to keep back the cavalry. But it's the seven samurai who do the vast majority of the fighting. And eventually, through this kind of communal effort, the samurai prevail. However, some of them do die. The question is, which one's... I'm not going to tell you which. Please, if you haven't seen it, treat yourself. I'd love, on Twitter, uh, as always, this, I guess this is the point where I'm going to plug it, I'm at Gem DiDucci on Twitter. If you're enjoying this episode on Samurai, we do them on so many different things. You know, everything from Rocky to Monopoly to... Cobra Kai, if you, if you want something else from Asia, tell you the whole history of karate in the Cobra Kai episode. Lots of different things there. Warhammer, if that's your bag. I know some people have come on to this because I've done multiple episodes on Warhammer. Well, you know, enjoy this, the samurai one too. But please, if you could share the love, tell somebody else about it. Give us a review. All this stuff helps spread the word. We are growing slowly, but I know we could grow further and faster. So please, please spread the love, retweet my tweets about the podcast. That'd be great. Click subscribe and tell a friend thank you very much and i'd love to hear what you think of seven samurai if you want to try out some of the other classics by akira kurosawa the samurai classics i mean there's this wonderful one called akira which is about this dying businessman in modern day i.e 1960s tokyo who builds a sort of a, a playground for children it's a beautiful quiet dignified movie it's very japanese but it's also far more modern I would uh, thoroughly recommend that one. They were going to remake that one with Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks is probably the only person who could pull off that sort of like dying businessman. So look, Kurosawa hasn't just done samurai films, but that's what he's best known for. He's done some great versions of Shakespeare. He's done Throne of Blood, which is his version of Macbeth. Toshiro Mafuni basically playing Macbeth again. The bit at the end when the castle's under attack. I mean, it's the other thing. Japan has castles, very different looking castles to European ones. But at the end, he's basically being fired at by all these. And it's amazing special effects for the time because they got Olympic standard archers to fire genuine arrows at him. The look of terror on his face is real. That is hardcore. You've got to respect that one. Another one, his last great movie in the 1980s, so he had a very long career, is called Ran, R-A-N, which is his version of King Lear. But you also might want to say, as I said, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, which is a sequel to Yojimbo. Fun fact on Sanjuro is going to give something away here. At a key moment in this film, okay, it's towards the end, so sorry about this, there is a sword fight and basically the blood squib went off wrong. It was just meant to sort of spray, and go, but instead, all the compressed air went off at once, and there is this colossal fountain. It's in black and white, otherwise it would be rated 15, but it's black and white, and it's just this huge geyser of blood pouring out this guy, which which looks awesome, and that's why it was kept in. But it was that one scene that has led, since then, in Asian cinema to have these great gushes of blood. Obviously, nowadays, they're all in red, but it was down to Sanjiro by Akira Kurosawa, way back sort of 50 years ago there so there we go that's something else to check out seven samurais i've said lots and lots of goodness there would love to see if you get into akira kurasawa courtesy of this podcast if you do you're welcome so there we go that's the 1500s sengoku period now let's go to roni kenshin and now we go to the Meiji restoration 1868 yeah i know we started off at the time of the mongols and the crusades now we're post u.s civil war we're at the age of photography and steam engines all of this shows you the sheer period of influence that the samurai had on japanese society which you can tell is far different to the knights of old Jem says in inverted commas ruoni kenshin started off actually as an anime series in the 1990s the first one came out in 1996 so unusually quite often you get these influences that are mangas first the comic books first but this started off as an anime it got redubbed and re-edited and sent to the west and it was known as samurai x because I could spend a whole one on this one, but it's so sort of like niche. There's no way we'd get a good listen on on a podcast just only about Roni Kenshin. But basically, he has an X-shaped scar on his left cheek. Okay, so hence why it's just called Samurai X in the West, because that's easier to say. Kenshin is his name, by the way. So it was then turned into a manga But interestingly the same year of the manga You get a live action film Called Rurouni Kenshin Came out in
1: 2012 <laughs>
0: So we've got Influences of samurai From the 1950s I've given you an example of The 1990s And then the video game came out in 2020 So it does show you that you know, Over generations you're still getting This interest in samurai Kind of doesn't matter when it, it's all happening so with that in mind, Roni Kenshin, you can see right now on Netflix, there are a total of five movies. There's Roni 1, 2 and 3. And then annoyingly that came out in 2020, I believe, there is Kenshin, the finale and Kenshin, the beginning. I watched them the wrong way round. I would definitely recommend watch beginning first because that's the beginning. It's not really going to give anything away. I don't know your story, but I do know that this is not a good place for you
1: so does that mean you're going to kill me like that samurai from last night
0: but technically it's finale and then beginning which is the stupid way to do it surely
2: people make mistakes
0: anyway anyway what's it all about it's about this kid really they do specifically say he's sort of 1880 during the ocean war and, and sort of like the Meiji restoration more on what that means in a moment and he basically is an assassin and he's an assassin for this group that wants to bring back the emperor. Do you remember I mentioned earlier about the Tokugawas and how they created the shogunate, which did away with the emperor in terms of power? And for 250 years, Japan was run by these from the same family of Tokugawa, and they were titled the shoguns. And they were the ones who locked off the country of Japan to the West. Now, interestingly, gunpowder might have been invented in China, but it didn't really make it over to... Japan until you get Westerners coming in during that Sengoku period who had matchlocks. So this is before the flintlock rifles. So matchlocks are basically a musket, but instead of like a triggering mechanism with a flint, it actually has just basically a smoldering cord. The trigger brings the cord down onto a pan of gunpowder. Bang. That was as far as the technology got in the 1500s in Europe. And it's as far as the technology got in Japan, which did lead to an upgrade in samurai armor. The armor itself is articulated. So it's lots of strips or pieces of metal, unlike a Western knight. Sometimes they were made out of leather. Sometimes they were composite, what we call today composite armor. So like leather and silk and lacquer. And actually those different layers would make it as tough as steel but there were also steel armor as well and it was all lacquered literally using this lacquer technique from asia which was uh, amazingly resilient made it all waterproof to give you an idea for cheap troops not the samurai they wouldn't have this but for cheap troops they'd literally have paper armor multiple layers of paper and cloth and then all lacquered together and actually it could take a one-off hit as well as any kind of steel armor but of course as soon as it started crumpling or rupturing At that point, the whole thing failed, if you like. But it was good enough that even in rain, that wouldn't compromise that kind of armor. So incredibly clever armor. The face masks were only ever worn in full battles to protect your face for obvious reasons. And the reason for those kind of weird shaped helmets was to deflect blows. If you do see anybody with flags on their back, partly that was to identify which clan are you with but also because it acted as a protection from arrows. Arrows would get snagged in these sort of banners sort of strapped to their backs. It was all incredibly clever. And overall, a samurai's armor encased them pretty much to the same level as a Western knight, but it was lighter because it wasn't all just heavy steel plates. Incredibly clever stuff. But yes, it did get a bit of an upgrade once the bullets started flying around the battlefield because you want to keep your samurai safe. So for 250 years, nothing changed in America. Sorry, in America, in Japan, the reason why I mention America is America was the first country to actually start dealing with Japan. So America started bringing in Western ideas right after the U.S. Civil War. So if you can imagine the technology, the U.S. Civil War, things like Gatling guns and cannons and things like that, this revolutionized Japan. There was huge arguments about whether they should or shouldn't keep the old ways, and that's what the Boshin War was about. In essence, it was a fight between the traditionalists who wanted to keep the shogunate and the people who wanted to bring back the emperor as a head of a new Japan. It wasn't that they all wanted the emperor, but they recognized that clearly Japan had fallen behind other powers out there, and they needed to adapt and change. But at the end of this, the revolutionaries, if you like, the pro-change people won— and part of that was down to the technology, although, to be fair, to the other side, the pro-shogunate side, they were willing to use technology too. But everybody at that moment was kind of set in their ways. But when it came to things like yeah, this is also shown in The Last Samurai, incredibly poorly, by the way. It's a good film. Everyone is polite. Everyone smiles and bows. But beneath their courtesy I detect a deep reservoir of feeling. As somebody once said, it's dances with wolves with samurai, or dances with samurai, and that's a really accurate depiction. Tom Cruise is excellent in it. It looks gorgeous. It's a lot of fun. It's historically wrong, and undeniably the wrong person dies at the end. I'm not going to say who and why and how. So it's a flawed film, but it's a good film. Let me put it that way. But it does sort of show basically the shogunate people as being resistant to any form of change. That's not true. But it does show you what the Japanese army was now beginning to look like in the 1860s, i.e. they were wearing cloth uniforms, holding muskets, bayonets, backed up by artillery. In other words, they looked exactly like a Western army. And suddenly the samurai are gone. And indeed, pretty much the first thing that happened in the Meiji Restoration is the samurai were Banned. They were stopped. And Roni Kenshin kind of comes in at the beginning of this. So there are all these samurai who are out of work, etc. But he himself, the moment this war is over, he says, I will never kill again. And he gets, this is so manga, so anime. It's a metaphor, but it doesn't make any real world sense. He will continue to be a swordsman to protect people in his life and, you know, defend the innocent kind of thing. He'll finally do the right thing. But he will not kill again. So He gets a katana made specially for him with a back blade. Well, as I said, it's slightly curved. So there's obviously a front and back to a samurai sword. So the front of his samurai sword is blunt. He can't cut you, but he can smack you around the head with a heavy metal sword. So he can sort of like knock you unconscious. But the back blade is as sharp as any kind of samurai sword. So in other words, it's reminding him of his danger and potency. It's a wonderful metaphor it makes no actual logical sense. Indeed, there's a couple of scenes where people sort of like parry him and push his sword towards him. And of course, with a normal samurai sword, it would just be a blunt edge pushing up against your shoulder. But because that one's the sharp side, he's being cut in the shoulder. All very dramatic. Basically, a lot of Japanese cinema is perhaps more melodramatic than... Western cinema. It's something that I like. It's something that can become way overwrought in some of the anime, but I do particularly like it. And I think Rurouni Kenshin, as I was saying to Dr. Jonti on Twitter, I was saying, that's the midway point between anime and Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, it's a bit crazy and wacky in some elements, but in other elements, it's got that sort of quiet dignity that Akira Kurosawa always has in his samurai films and they are beautifully shot movies but to give you an idea by the second film you have him having sword fights on a steamship with cannons that is something that you just couldn't have had in either the seven samurai or ghost of shishima and it shows you how much the samurai have been a part of society but how much that society has changed Indeed, by the time you get to World War 2 I've mentioned Kamikaze, but the officers of the Imperial Army and Navy and Air Force would have what westerners called samurai swords or katanas but if you look at them compared to real katanas of the samurai they're shorter they're shorter for obvious reasons because you're not going to be able to easily wield something like that you are basically going to be using world war ii style weapons pistol rifle etc flying in an aircraft and therefore having a big cumbersome sword doesn't work but if you think about a dress uniform of a western soldier they also have have Swords. Things like the US Marines are famous in their dress uniforms to have these completely out of context and useless but gorgeous looking, great for weddings and dress ceremonies, swords. And it's the same thing with the 1940s and 1930s Japanese Army. So you've got these echoes of samurai going through. But I'm going to finish off, if I may, with a sneak fourth bit of media. <laughs> because behind all of this is lurking a book it's called bushido the soul of japan it's written by inazo Nitobe. now if you're sitting there going that sounds pretty japanese he is he's a japanese immigrant to california and in 1900 he wrote bushido the soul of japan now i haven't actually mentioned bushido before bushido is the code of conduct absolutely comparable not the same but same idea as chivalry in the western world at the time of knights and why do i mention inazo nitobe is because that book solidified the image of the samurai across the world he wrote it in english and that in 1900 was kind of the first time Clearly, there are records, like, for example, the Americans who went to Japan in the 1860s. There are records of samurai before that, but they hadn't caught anybody's imagination. But everything you think of with samurai and everything that you see in these movies and video games is harking back to this. It eventually got translated into Japanese and was a huge hit. It came out more than 120 years ago and it has never been out of print and this idea of like the sort of spiritual connection between the samurai and their sword and how bushido would never be broken because these were men of honor all you have to do is look at chivalry things like the 100 years war yes there were knights yes there was sorts of codes of conduct but when push came to shove i'm going to win this battle anyway i can even with cannons or longbowmen the cheap peasants killing the very expensive knights at somewhere like Agincourt whatever it takes to win couldn't care less about chivalry in the moment in the heat of battle and it's the same thing when you look through the chronicles of japan samurai aren't sort of superhuman ultra noble warriors they're human beings fighting they're very good at fighting and they got great equipment at fighting but they're still human they still make mistakes they still do dumb things some of them run away you certainly don't win them all that's for sure but all of this can be sent back to this book that just sort of it's almost like the mort d'Arthur you know knights existed but then you get these legends of king arthur written down and sort of spread throughout europe and this idea of courtly love and all this kind of stuff everybody knew that these were ideals that you couldn't match but the thing about those is they were happening literally at the same time as knights this, however, was written several generations after the last samurai had ever picked up a sword to fight. So it's a love letter to the samurai, but it is it is not a history. Everyone thought it was a history, but it's actually creating the stuff of legends. Every culture has their own kind of legendary people. In the West, in Europe, it's knights. In America, it's cowboys. In Japan, it's a samurai, and it's okay to have these sort of icons of your history that are distorted, but at least they get people vaguely interested. As I said, I don't know how many people are watching Moroni Kenshin on like Netflix and going, Ooh. You know is that a real battle the answer is yes yes the battle in the very first scene of the very first movie is a real battle and holding up the chrysanthemum banner of the emperor because they're, they're called the emperors of the chrysanthemum throne this sort of like stylized version of chrysanthemum that was such a new banner in that battle that actually the side hoisting it up had to explain to the other side what it was that's not in the movie but you know i picked this this stuff up from watching the film. I'd already knew a fair chunk about it anyway, but there's all this stuff around Samurai. They're really interesting to read about they're really great to watch some movies about too and also there's fun to have be had in some video games as well so look I really hope I've got you into the wonderful world of samurai I said there were three but sneakily there was a book in there at the end and that fact which I expand upon it's actually a little sneaky plug for me is from my new book Slinkies and Snake Bombs by Jem Daduchu that's come out in 2021 and it's just full of lots of random interesting facts and just to sort of let you into a little secret slightly perversely i've got various facts about different samurai in the book i cover all kinds of topics it might be the aztecs it might be the renaissance it might be the industrial revolution anywhere in the world as long as it's a weird or wonderful fact i talk about tomoe gozen who is a female very feared female samurai technically samurai is a male word so Bugesha is the technical word for a female fighter in the battlefield There's real evidence of them. They're not made up, by the way. So anyway, so I talk about all these various facts off and on, peppered throughout the book. And then the very last fact to mention Samurai is this one from 1900 going, um, actually, maybe what you know about Samurai isn't quite what you think. So yeah, and I do put some disclaimers in that fact, saying, well, it doesn't mean that everything I've said previously is wrong, but just, yeah, that image in your head may not quite be right. I'll stop there. Thank you very much for your time. And as always,